the incomparable. Number 514, May 2020. Welcome back, everybody, to The Incomparable. I'm your host, Jason Snell, and this is a very special episode. It's one of those episodes we do every so often with one of our own, one of our favorite panelists, who has uh, written a book. I've done this with Dan Morin. I've done this with Anthony Johnston. And uh, we're back around to Dan again. Dan has a new book that's out May 12th, 2020, called The ALF Extraction. It is Galactic Cold War Book 2, because like any nerd... Any good nerd, Dan, uh, starts counting from zero. It's his third book. Hi, Dan. Hi, Jason. I will say, and this has come up in other places, but I heard you 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 did it correctly, quote unquote, before the show, and then you changed the pronunciation of the book when you did the actual intro. It's the and extraction. someday, someday, I'm gonna write a book that doesn't have multiple multiple possible pronunciations because literally all three of the books in this series, there are multiple ways to pronounce. Them. I always said Aleph, but it's Aleph like an olive, but not or Aleph. In fact, when I said Aleph, when I said Aleph to like. Friedman, he's like, well, I would have pronounced it Aleph like the letter. And I was like, all right, that might just be an accent thing. I don't know. It's not Aleph. <laughs> Who is Al F? Yes. I, that's fine. Is he related I to ex- Axel F? That's, yes. He played the closing theme on Beverly Hills. Right. <laughs> all right. Well, this is going yeah. great, Dan. What a duo. <laughs> so yeah. here's what we're going to do. So the Aleph extraction or Aleph extraction, Al F <laughs> extraction. Uh, it's going to drive me um, nuts. Is coming out May 12th. Uh, if you ordered a paper copy, you may already have it because of the Indeed. pandemic. People are just shipping those books out when they get them. <laughs> I have pandemic. I have one in my hand right now that I bought from my local independent bookstore and they sent me in a box. I have a box of 20 behind me. <laughs> nice. And one day I will trade this one to you for mm-hmm. one that you signed. Indeed. But until then, let's talk about your book, not in um, not in spoilery terms, but I want to talk about the process. And uh, we have a bunch of listener questions. People wrote in with questions for you, which is really ah, great. Listener question. Yes, exactly. You know how this, you know how the incomparable works, Dan. So uh, I wanted to start with a question from me host jason (laughs) which Ah, is jason i want to start i want to start with the process of writing this book because i know something about uh, obviously these books i have read them in draft form um Mm. going back years different versions of these books uh the aleph extraction however was your first book written under contract not on spec you you wrote this book because you signed a two book contract with angry robot Mm -hmm. and the bayern agenda was book one of the two book contract and then essentially when that was done you're like uh okay i'm now also going to write another novel that i'm in under contract for and i need to do it with deadlines and also i'm getting married in the middle of that so (laughs) so i wanted to ask you how was that process of having to write a book while under contract and how was it different from all the other books that you've written I will tell you first off that it was it's kind of a blur like when I look back at it now like trying to remember especially is that, did you get hit in the head or something is that why <laughs> it kind of feels like it I mean Repeatedly. you know especially from the from the vantage point of where we, when we're recording this right now in May 2020 and the world has changed drastically since the point when I started writing that book um, but yeah the fundamentally the the change the biggest change from writing on spec to writing on contract was the time right like I wrote, you know, both Gambit and Bairn before I had 
any publishing deals. Right. Both of those were quote unquote done or at least drafted before years before I had an agent or I had publishing deals. So like writing those was pretty straightforward. I had as much time as I wanted, right? Like it took me nine years ish to go from Gambit being something I drafted to something that was actually out in the world as an actual book. And when Aleph rolled around, it was okay, do that, but do it in nine months. <laughs> and I remember at some point when I was, um, you know, signing the contract and thinking about the timeline and everything and realizing like, you know, going from thinking, well, I've got, you know, a year and a half to write this book. That's plenty of time. But like once you go through all the edits with Bayern and like, you know, going doing the publicity and all that jazz, I suddenly got to this point of realizing, well, in order for that book to be turned in and, I, you know, I have to I don't have as much time as I think I do, I think was the, was the first mm. thing I thought about because Bayern was already done. And so when I looked at the contract, I was like, wait a second, that's due. You know, Aleph was due like a year ago right like it's been a long time since i turned it in right and then it got turned around and got printed and all that so you know i i suddenly realized i've got to set deadlines that was like the number one most important thing i realized was like okay and i had to do that by working backwards and thinking like well if it's due on this date then that means that i need to have gotten it back from my agent like with enough time to make changes that he wanted me to make so you know budget like at least a few weeks to make those changes. And if I need to get to my agent on that date, then uh, I need to have had it back for my beta readers by this point. Okay, so now I need to budget time that I spent incorporating all the feedback of beta readers and giving them time to read it. And then I need to work back further and say, well, okay, I need to have you know at least gone through it once before... I turn it over to my beta readers, right? I'm not going to give them a draft that it's just like, all right, finish the last word, send it off. Uh, <laughs> that's that's not how that works either. So I need to work back from that point and say like, all right, well, I need to get it to them by this point and I need to have gone over it by that point. And then I get to the back point of like, all right, I need to have gone over it by this point. That means I need to have finished it right. by this point. And so it ended up being, I think I started writing... I want to say in, I have to, what year is it? I think I write it mainly September 2018. Does that sound right? That's yeah. probably right. Uh, through December. I was like, I'm going to have it done, first draft done by the end of 2018. And I beat that estimate. I think I was a couple weeks early on it. Like mid-December, I finished it. Um, which is good too, because like before the holiday, or like before really like Christmas holidays and stuff kicked off for me, because that was going to be busy. And so... Then I sat on it for a while, and I think the hardest thing I did was like I wanted. I've seen different different approaches from authors, and like I know authors who like finish the first draft and then immediately like start in and do like a polish um, while it's fresh in their mind. And I was like, I'll let it sit for a few weeks. I think that might have been a mistake in in retrospect, just because like. I let it sit longer than I wanted to. And when I finally got back, it wasn't as fresh in my mind and doing a polish took a lot longer. Um, so if I did that again for a book in the future, I think I would turn do a second draft like immediately and then let it sit for a bit. Hmm. Um, and then, yeah, so I had to like, I didn't hit all my deadlines exactly. And I was also changed a little bit like the, the, the publication date got pushed back in there a little bit to give me a little more time and to give the editor a little more time with it. Um, but yeah, the, the biggest thing was like, can I write a book or fundamentally like draft a book start to finish in like four months? Right. And the answer is surprising me more than anyone is yes. And it's not bad either, right? Like it's not a pile of garbage. Like it actually came together. And I think the work that I did on the previous books of being 
disciplined, even though I was like mainly writing those on like the weekends in between my day job at that point, I learned a lot from that. And of course, you know, doing a day job that largely involves deadlines helps a lot too. You get used to being like, all right, I need to learn how to budget time to write something, right? Whether it's a, I need, you know, an hour to write this piece, or I need to turn this around like in 20 minutes or whatever, like you get good at sort of gauging how long is this piece? What do I need to do? How much time? This is just that on a larger scale. So, you know, I really did stick to I'm going to write something every day. Uh, I'm going to get at least, you know, a thousand to fifteen hundred words down. If I have a better day, great. If I have a day that's slightly less fine, just make up for it. Uh, and it was fine. Like, I don't it was busy, like, and it was a lot of work. But like, once you get into the habit of doing it, it was not too bad. Um, the biggest thing for me always when struggling when writing a book is like, there's stuff you know you're going to need to fix later, right? Like, I, and people differ, again, on their approaches. I've talked to our friend Anthony Johnson a lot about this, and he is a meticulous, like, outliner, like, like planner on this thing. And I needed to be more of a planner here than in previous books, right? Because I needed, I couldn't be under contract to get half the way through the book and just be like, I don't know what happens now. I'm kind of stuck, <laughs> right? Like, it wasn't a, a case of, as with my earlier books, a case where it's like, well... I've only disappointed myself, you know? <laughs> it's like, no, I've disappointed a lot of people, some of whom have paid me money to do this. So I really need to deliver on it. <laughs> so planning was a big part of that. I wrote a whole synopsis. I didn't know like every little detail as it goes along, but I knew the broad strokes. I knew where it ended. I knew some like scenes that I wanted to have in there. And I left just enough room to improvise that I felt like I could still feel like I'm not just sitting here transcribing like an idea I had. I'm still like creating as I go. And that's that's what helps me for my process is still feeling like there are surprises left to discover along the way. There is a classic uh, discussion about whether you there are outliners and there are pancers, which is, you know, Pan by pancers the, and plotters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, uh, pancers and plotters. Exactly. Uh, by the seat of their pants is what a pantser is. Yes. Uh, was this the most plotty you've ever you know had as a as a book have you where you've gone in with the clearest agenda uh not the, the not the bayern, bayern agenda, agenda yeah um of yes what you needed to write absolutely um, how did that affect you it it helped in some ways and and part of it was the subject matter itself because i knew one big part of this book not to spoil anything but like there's a heist in this book and a heist is not something you can pants <laughs> In any situation, in any sense of the word, like it's the whole idea behind a heist is it's something that's like it's it's planned out, right? Like it's executed based on a plan and you need a certain degree, especially in something that's like a heist genre. You need something where it's like, ah, oh, there's twists, right? Like there's twists, there's reversals, there's complications. Like you kind of need to have a picture in your head to keep the drama going of like, how is this going to work, right? Like you think about something, I watched a bunch of movies, uh, some in pre preparation for this and some just because I love this type of movie. But like you think about any of the Mission Impossible movies, for example, where they do the heist, like the original, right? Where they're breaking into the CIA and and Tom Cruise like lowers himself down in that thing, right? And like you got to add the complications. Oh no, the guy's coming back into the room. Oh no, the sweat's dripping off his glasses, right? Like that's what adds tension. And I think it's hard to come up with those in the, in the spur of the moment because you immediately need to solve for it, right? Like, oh, how are they going to get out of this? And if you do too much of it where it's like, in the spur of the moment, I invented this problem, and in the spur of the moment, I solved this problem, then it sometimes feels too pat. Um, and so I really wanted to spend time planning that out more ahead of time so that I would be able to have something that felt 
it's weird. The more time you spent planning it, the more quote unquote spontaneous it feels when you throw the spanner in the works. So yeah, I, it made a big difference in the way that I both executed on sort of that like uh, individual scene level and also just in the big picture of the book. Like I knew where I wanted this book to start and I knew where I wanted it to end uh, although I did uh, change something at the very end. I, I went in thinking it was going to end one way. And then when I got to the end, I was like, I think this needs to be a different, slightly different spin at the end there. Um, and that was like one of the biggest surprises for me going into the book, even though I had plotted it being about one thing. Um, it, when I actually got down to it and wrote it, I thought that doesn't work as well as this idea. <laughs> uh, for the record, and this is this is really funny, I sent you my comments on your draft a year ago yesterday really okay oh wow <laughs> okay so yeah that makes sense right because i would have been i would have been making right around now i would have been making changes uh to tune i think it was due july 1st yeah it was due like two weeks before my wedding uh and i think i ended up maybe turning it in afterwards because the the release date got pushed back um but yeah like so I, right now i would have been doing all the revisions from the beta uh, readers yeah. and then folding that into something to send to my agent. Um, and yeah, I don't, I don't remember. I feel like a lot of people did uh, getting, getting responses from, from beta readers is always interesting because people find different things. Like you mm -hmm. find different things from like, uh, one of my cousins who's a, uh, retired physics teacher, uh, is like my go-to guy for anything space related. And obviously he finds very different things than you do. <laughs> I found a computer, a computer related thing in Anthony Johnston's, uh, oh, yeah. last book. I did, I did too. <laughs> did you find that too? I thought it might be a different one, but yeah, this is, and it was one of those things where I was like, Oh, uh, this doesn't work this way. Uh, here's how this works. And I think that that just, that's what's in the book now is he changed it to make yeah. it that way. And I was yeah. like, Hey, no one about computers. I fixed a thing in a book. Yay. Well, it's good. <laughs> it's good to have subject matter experts, especially yeah. when you're dealing with that specific type of thing right like because anybody who reads that book who is a computer person will immediately get annoyed or dragged out right. of it if they're like that's not how that works right like that's not how encryption works <laughs> yeah exactly exactly and so the same thing for me is like i have like in my head like very dramatic ideas of what happens you know in space and you know having somebody who's a expert in physics come and be like well that wouldn't really work like this. It would work like this. And I'm like, oh, okay, well, I need to go change some things. But I still want to maintain, like, the dramatic license. So sometimes you you tweak stuff, right? It's sci-fi. You can be like, all right, there's a technology that we've invented that makes that easier, right? Like, I mean, it's, it's fundamentally, it's a book where there's, like, wormholes in space, right? Like, so there's some fictional aspects. But you don't want to – I do not set out to necessarily write an Expanse-style story where it's like let's get really into like the physics of how ships work right. because that's just not as interesting to me i mean expanse they do it great but like that's just not the story i'm trying it's not to the tell book you want to write you mentioned your agent and sending it to your agent i think that's a thing that would probably surprise people who imagine that the the publishing process is um you are a writer and you have an editor and you send it to your editor and uh then they publish it or they they send it to a copy editor or something but your age agent joshua is um is a key part of the process for mm -hmm. you right yeah it's uh, and it varies. Not every agent is like that. Uh, they are all, you know, unique in that in the way they handle their relationships with their clients. Uh, Joshua was such a big part of developing both uh, Gambit and Baron to the point where they got published. That's like that that has become part of my process. And he tends to be a fairly hand on hands on, uh, you know, uh, agent when it comes to reading things. He wants to see stuff. Uh, he spent so long in the business that he knows 
you know, he knows not only like kind of instinctually like what stuff works and what doesn't, um, but he also has a good eye for like what's going to what's going to make this book the best version of itself. Uh, and, you know, we don't always see eye to eye and we'll disagree about things. And ultimately, as he is, again, he's he's a good agent because he's like, ultimately, it's your book. You know, if you don't want to do that, you don't have to do that. Um, and so, you know, famously, famously, that's probably overstating it. Notably, uh, when when I did Bayern, there's a whole ongoing thing in Bayern with um, flashbacks uh, for Simon Kovalik and talking about his history. And we we definitely clashed over whether or not those should be in the book because he felt like they took you out of the main plot. Um, and I know some people have felt that way, but I also literally just the other day, somebody was telling me how much they love those because they felt it really fleshed out the world. Um, and it's like, yeah, I don't know. I mean, there's no there's no wrong or right answer as far as that goes. Like some people are going to like it and some people aren't going to like it. And I understand why his initial impetus was like, yeah, these really distract from your ongoing plot. But I felt strongly enough that it needed to be in there that he's like, yeah, it's your book. You know, at the end of the day, your name's going to be on it. Right. <laughs> so you should make the call on that. And, and I found the editors I've worked with tend to be fairly good about that as well. Like they're going to give you things that they think you should change or ways that you think you can improve things or stuff that should cut. Um, but you know, at the same time, I I think it's wise. You don't want to push back on every little thing, right? Like you don't want to make right. yourself a pain, but like it's a collaborative process, right? There's some give and there's some take. So when I gave you my notes, I was just looking at the notes. I had, I had some pretty detailed notes about things that didn't work for me. Mm -hmm. And it's definitely not Dan changed these things. It's very much like one person read this book and their brain you know, process it as they were going and some of it hit them and, and maybe a little more critically focused than I would normally be. I mean, I'm critical about books, but I'm not necessarily writing. I, I don't generally write emails to the authors of the books when I'm done with them about what I didn't like. <laughs> not generally. That's, yeah, uh, if, I read a if I read a David Brin novel, I would absolutely <laughs> send him an email because he's great at taking criticism. Anyway, um, uh, but but the way the, the way I always thought of it is this is how this stuff hit one person, mm -hmm. which is me. I it could be a problem. It could just be me. Sure. But I call them out, and you get to you get to say hmm, I'm okay with it, or oh, is that hitting people wrong? And it allows you to look it over and make a decision for yourself. Because ultimately, yeah, it's your book. All I can do as a beta reader is the same thing, which is say uh, this this struck me strangely. Do you need to give this more attention? And then you decide. Right. And and, and what's interesting too is always getting if you get a a bunch you know a diverse set of people reading it. Um, what what things they snag on that are the same or different is right. interesting to me because we talked about how some people pick up on different things but what's a bigger indication is if, if you give it to you know five people and four of them come back and be like this part you're like all right i need to look i need to look at that part right like that's the best kind of criticism oftentimes is like several people agree that something is not hitting right because at that point you've identified a problem right like it's not the oh my gosh is this just you know one person thinks this and especially because if everybody comes back with different things they, they find need improvement that can be a disheartening point for an author where because it's like oh no all of these different things like right. five people tell me each 10 things that need to be changed there's 50 things i need to fix in this book um that's yeah. that's a question because it's like well are there really 50 things or is this more a case where it's like well a few over here a few over here but if there's a consensus, then you definitely know you need to address something. Or on the flip side, on the positive side, if there's a consensus about something people love, that's also great because you're like, well, if, if you know, four out of my five readers love this scene, clearly 
that is working. You mentioned about cutting stuff and 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 having that conversation with uh, with Joshua about flashbacks and all of that. And this actually goes with one of our uh, reader questions, oh. listener questions. Re- questions. We'll call them readers. There are Re- readers. Reader questions. They're your readers. They are. Um, and and this question is about. Um, you released two free mini books Mm, mm -hmm. and the question was I don't know anything about the bookmaking process were these cut from other books so you could hit a page count were they parts that were unnecessary and I wanted to ask more broadly uh, just like the story behind things you cut and what ended up being in those um, those two things that Mm, you released mm -hmm. yeah I so I cut I keep everything I cut, first of all, like whether it's a sentence or a paragraph or a chapter. I, I This is the nice thing about Scrivener is the tool I use to write. And it, there's like always just a folder I make. And it's like, well, that didn't work. Drag it out of the main manuscript folder and into my like cut stuff folder. Uh, and that way I can always refer back to stuff if I decide, oh, I want to save that line or that line works somewhere else. Um, in this particular case, both of those things were things that were cut um, from different manuscripts. So the two short stories are Pilot Error and Showdown. Pilot Error, and I think I wrote, if you read to um, the end of both of the ebooks I released, there's actually author's notes that I, I wrote for those explaining kind of where this was, why I cut it. Um, but essentially what it ended up being, Pilot Error was the first part of Eli's first chapter in the Bayern Agenda. And in fact, if you read that and then you immediately read the Baron agenda, you'll realize that like essentially the end of pilot error leads directly, like literally you could copy and paste it into Eli's first chapter and it would just pick up from there pretty much. Uh, And the reason I cut it is because it's fairly long, like it's several thousand words. Um, It is interesting from my point of view to get into the realm of this character, but a lot of what we had to change, there's a couple of reasons I got caught. One, by the time we were looking to shop Bayern around, it had already been clear that Talos, my original publisher for the Caledonian Gambit, was not going to buy uh, a follow-up. So we decided to shop Bayern around as sort of a standalone, like beginning of a new series, hence the numbering. Um, and as part of that, we wanted to make the book stand better on its own. And a lot of what's involved in that section of pilot error is kind of Eli coming to terms with stuff that happened in the Caledonian Gambit. And since we didn't want people to feel like, oh no, did I not read a book somewhere? I have to go back and find this other book. I slimmed that down a lot. The other part of it is just, it's a lot before you get to the part where Eli gets hooked into the main plot. There's just a lot of extraneous stuff, none of which really matters in the larger scope of the plot. Some of the stuff that's in there, I did deliberately set up because it hints at stuff that happens like towards the end of the book. Like it's a call, there's a callbacks to stuff he comes up with in this chapter as like a piloting maneuver that he then reuses. But it didn't feel like that was important enough for it to merit the several thousand words that are there before we sort of get to the main meat of Eli's first chapter, which is him getting dragged into this mission. Um, the other part of it is, I don't want to say too much about giving away with pilot error, but like essentially there's a lot in there that feels like it's consequential that ultimately isn't consequential mm. because of the setting of it. And my agent felt like some of that was a bit of a cheat. Like you're, you're ginning up some drama that ultimately doesn't really have any impact. Like there wasn't really the kind of drama there that you're portraying. Uh, and so I understood that. Like I think he made a lot of great points. 
and, and just the, the main thing of it being a distraction before you get to sort of the, the central part of the plot, I think was a good one. But it was nice enough that like when I sliced out those several thousand words, I'm like, well, there's still a good little story in here. Uh, and you get a little more time with Eli and you get a little more of his reactions to the events of the Caledonian Gambit. So I was like, this makes a nice little short story. And originally I sent it out to uh, subscribers to my newsletter um, and thought like, this is a fun little treat for people. Uh, and then it, it seemed like it made a good candidate to just sort of be packaged up into an ebook. So that one, that's the reason that one got cut. Showdown is kind of an interesting, more interesting story. I wrote that a really long time ago as sort of an impetus for like, I wonder what the first part like I, I wanted to do like the little cold open which i like doing in some of the books where it's like ah here's the team off on an adventure here's when they're operating and like you know doing the thing they do right like this is how they they conduct missions and i thought that that could be fun as a, like a little cold open before you get to the main plot of the book um but books don't always work well like that, <laughs> as it turns out. Uh, having, you know, a few thousand words at the top where it's like, let's spend time on something that's not really related to anything that happens in the book. It seems like kind of time wasty, right? Like, so I liked the story. I liked a lot of the banter that was in there and the relationships. Um, but ultimately, I mean, that was written well before I started on Aleph. And it didn't even make the cut of like, uh, when I started working on Aleph, like really in earnest, I was like, no, that doesn't work. It just doesn't, it doesn't fit. Um, but again, it made a nice little story in and of itself and it gave you some more time with the characters and it's just kind of a fun little adventure moment. So again, I thought that would be a, a nice little uh, short story to share with people. And I also sent it out to my newsletter and and um, that seemed like the other sort of natural fit. Um, so it's like, it's nice when it fits like that. Like I, I recently sent out a, another deleted scene that was one of the flashbacks from Bayern that I didn't include in the final version. And that one's like, it's a little short. Um, I don't think it necessarily stands on its its own as well. So I'm not sure I would give that the same ebook treatment. Um, but it is it is. There's definitely lots of stuff that gets discarded along the way because it turns out like it was like an interesting little diversion or a cul-de-sac to go down. But at the end of the day, it didn't really add much to the story. All right, fair enough. Um, I got a lot of uh, reader questions, which we should okay. probably uh, continue with. But um, I want to take a break first to tell all the good people out there about our sponsor for this episode of The Incomparable. This episode of The Incomparable is brought to you by Pingdom from SolarWinds. If you've got a website, does it have a shopping cart? Does it have registration forms? Does it have a contact us page? You need Pingdom, especially if you have those things. Nobody wants their critical website transactions to fail. That's a bad experience for your users. It could mean lost business for you. The good news is you can set up transaction monitoring with Pingdom. Transaction monitoring alerts you when cart checkout forms and login pages fail before they affect your customers and your business. Always checking. And they'll let you know. Pingdom will let you know the moment they fail in whatever way works best for you and your business. You can customize how you're alerted, who gets alerted, and you can vary it based on how severe the outage is. Pingdom cares that your users have the smoothest site experience possible, and if disaster strikes, you will be the first to know. Super easy to get started. Go to pingdom.com slash Snell right now. You'll get a 14-day free trial, no credit card required. When you sign up, use the code Snell, S-N-E-L-L, my last name. At checkout, you'll get 30% off your first invoice. Thanks to Pingdom from SolarWinds for sponsoring The Incomparable. Hey, Dan, you still there? I'm here. Okay, uh, listener questions. Uh, we were talking about sort of the business of writing, so I'm gonna I'm gonna um, dig into those a little bit more, and then uh, I've got I've got whole categories here. Um, 
how uh, well what here here's a question well the first question is how much will this book make you dollar sign dollar sign dollar sign <laughs> uh, but another question would be when, when would you call yourself a success as an author is, is it x number of books is it publishing a certain number of books is it awards is it something else entirely how do you i'm gonna roll these two together like how do you measure yeah. success and can you Ultimately, I mean that's a that's a question you can dollar ask about sign, almost dollar anything. Sign, dollar, dollar sign, dollar sign, dollar sign. When I buy a house, um, I think you know. Ultimately, you can ask yourself that about any pursuit, and right. I think you, you don't want to peg too much of your feelings of being a success on external factors because they're totally out of your control, right? Like I'm here launching this book in the middle of a pandemic. I don't know what that's going to do to the sales. Uh, it could be it could be fine could be bad could be good who knows maybe people are indoors and reading a lot more like so you know you don't want to have to be validated by something that you have zero control over so for me honestly you know i don't want to say there's diminishing returns because i think it's actually the opposite like i i was commenting to a friend uh, who just had his debut come out um that i felt when my first book came out and I got like the big box of books and everything like it was good. It was it was exciting, but it was kind of underwhelming when you spent like eight or nine years on something and it's like, all right. And then, you know, the next day it's like, well, reset. Uh, and so the other day I was sitting in my living room and, and uh, my wife's copy, the copy she ordered actually was on the coffee table. And so I picked it up and I just had this moment of like, I actually like smelled the pages because, you know, that book smell. And yeah. I was like, Oh, it's a book smell of a book I wrote. And I, like, I, I started smiling at that because I was like, oh, I just didn't even think it was not a thing that I was like, let me mark this momentous moment. It was just a little detail of like, oh, I put all these words in here. It's the sweet smell of success, Dan. <laughs> yeah, there it is. So that's when you smell your work. That's how you know <laughs> it's a success. Fantastic. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I So I, I don't think you can... I mean, the, for me, ultimately, the best feeling of success is if I kept, get to keep doing it. Um, and I feel like three books in, I feel much better about knowing how the business works and about being able to sort of repeat the process than I did after even one or maybe two. So, you know, I think that's a big part of it for me. Uh, the The money side of it on the other side of the equation, I mean, book finances are weird. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think I don't remember if we talked about this in previous episodes. I think or we not, did. Like, I think we did. I think we did. There are very, go very few novelists who make their primary living from Absolutely. writing novels. Very, very, yeah. very few. Very few. And and there's uh, and that's one reason I think you don't want to ever peg it to the money because again, it's totally out of your control. And most books do not. You know, you'll make a little bit of money from the advance, hopefully, but you know, most books aren't going to be blockbusters, bestsellers that make you a ton of money. Same thing with awards, right? Like that's it's a popularity contest we all agree yep. it would be great i mean i'd love to frankly i'd just love to be nominated like for an award that would be really it would be a nice feeling but like i can't control that i don't want to you know hinge my feelings of it being a success as an author on whether or not a whole bunch of other people decided to vote for me in a specific award uh what's nice is like getting i love getting tweets where people like take a picture of the book uh or people even better are like i i, I just read this part and it was great like you know that kind of stuff feels good like it's it's just knowing that people are engaging with and reading your work uh and liking it i think is ultimately kind of the most you can hope for your cover has an astronaut in a spaceship and like a like a swooshy warpy thing going on warpy thing what was your what was the process it's very similar in design to the first one um yeah 
somebody at Angry Robot just uh, put it together? And did you draw another like bad drawing of something? I do actually. I do have a bad drawing. I don't think I've posted that one, but I do have a terrible drawing um, of and it Where again, it's like a stick figure. A stick figure is it's a is stick figure floating, floating away from a spaceship. Yeah, <laughs> um, that was exactly what I did. I, I love the design of it. I love the way, and I love that it goes so nice with the the Baron agenda. I think that they make such a attractive pair together. Um, you know, the the process was I I sketched out my idea and tried to describe it. Um, they sent me, uh, you know, some some ideas of what it might look like, and then I mean they've been very good. This this was designed by someone at uh, Angry Robot, um, and I'm gonna look inside and see if it's got the Georgi- Georgina Hewitt. Um, I didn't have any direct uh, any, like comfort like discussion with her but like i talked to my like contacts at angry robot and they went to her and she you know whipped up some stuff and then sent it back and we had a little bit of a back and forth on that where we moved stuff around um ultimately i think it came out looking pretty much what i wanted it to look like or at least what i wanted to convey like i like to pick scenes in the book that i think are are interesting or action-packed or whatever and kind of you know at least have a a relevance to something in the book like because you see people like who have end up with these really terrible covers right like i'm thinking of like stuff i read when i was in like my teens um famously the um <laughs> jason and knows that my favorite books the verkozigan saga which i know you like as well mm-hmm. a lot of the covers for those are just terrible <laughs> um, oh man it's because people cannot figure out how to draw these characters and i had an agent my um uh one of the other agents who worked at my firm who has since left who insisted that like good covers you know are kind of a good deal and he never wanted people on the covers he's like let people imagine what they look like don't don't put images into their head necessarily because you know there's there's too much chance that it it goes wrong so i have had people on on both my last covers but they're like vague enough that i feel like it still leaves you some uh you know you don't have to go in thinking like oh does this look like the person on the cover um but yeah i think it, it came out looking great i love the purple like this purple is just not a color that gets a lot of uh, use on yeah. covers. I feel it looks like. good. It looks good. Um, okay, let's see some more questions here. Uh, with your recent self-publishing endeavor for the short stories, mm. would you go that route for a project, perhaps even future installments of this, if you don't have a traditional publisher? I don't know. Uh, it's something I've thought about. I like working in traditional publishing. I think that there's a lot of you know they both have their upsides and downsides and i know people uh, you know who've made a good uh, a good uh, career out of spanning those we talked about uh, recently our friend john birmingham um has uh kind of done both dipped his toe into both he's those. all over the place he's got he's got a you know mainstream publisher with the the cruel stars which is a really great yep. space opera and then he's also done his axis of times access of time like sequels he did as self-published and they right. might go back together as a published book but like it's it's he's all over the place he's trying different stuff it's very right cool. and i think i think it's great that the options are all there and i and part of the reason i did that experiment was to see if i could right like what's involved in this like can i put together a book can i self-publish something how much work does that require right and i discovered it takes a lot of work um and there are still other, you know, options as far as that goes. Like uh, my my agency has actually done some like publishing of eBooks. They have their own eBook program where they publish some of their authors as eBooks. Interesting. Um, yeah. So like you know, and everybody's kind of experimenting a bit with that. So I, it's not it's not something I've ruled out. Um, uh, I think right now, like my focus is on traditional publishing, just because I think you know I. In, 
I like the process. I've gotten used to the process. It's good to have a relationship with uh, publishers. Like, you know, they, they do a lot of great work. Like I was not going to come up with a cover this good on my own. Um, I've seen, I, I've seen the drawings, Dan. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> I mean, like I made that, I made those covers for my short stories too, but that was like a combination of like stock art and yeah. some like, you know, kind of me, your lettering. <laughs> they did look good, but yeah, you know, I the, agree. But stock uh, art is amazing, but yeah, stock art is amazing for that. Um, and I, uh, but you know, I haven't ruled it out. And I think a lot of it, it will kind of depend on the future of the series. There are other things, uh, stories I like to tell in this universe. And there is kind of like an ongoing overarching plot. And I've, you know, I will be sad if it ends up being that these, these three books are the only ones that deal with that. And so I might come back to it at some point, but I'm not sure I would come back to it immediately. I don't know. Um, right. So yeah, I don't have a good answer. But what would be I'm, really I'm great like, is yeah. if is if your publisher, if Angry Robot said, uh, "Al F Extraction, Al Al F, Mister Al F Extraction," <laughs> says more books. Um, yeah, but that's they, ideal. This one needs because to sell I, uh, to, for that. Uh, yeah, so you know, everyone buy it. Make your friends buy it. Make your family buy it. Make your enemies buy it. That's why I tell you. Great. Um, your enemies will love it. Uh, one more sort of. Uh, business of writing question which is about word count i mentioned it earlier do you have a, mm. a target do you target a word count for the book or for a chapter um does your publisher say i want it to be this long or is it sort of just open to interpretation the contract did have a word count in it and it's usually got a um or at least in my experience it has a uh, like a plus or minus um like deliver this you know x within 10 percent essentially ah, interesting so you can't if you turn in a stephen king like a uh, 900 page thing they're gonna be like yeah nope, nope, uh, nope, nope. nope yeah cut that down uh but if i turn it you know at the same time you don't want to turn it in something that's like a novella basically right um so i had a target and in fact looking back at my manuscript which isn't i don't have the finished version in front of me but i have my scrivener file uh i think my target was a hundred thousand words and the manuscript is a hundred thousand four hundred eighty five words <laughs> at yeah. least in my draft that i turned in so like nailed it it's 385 um, pages of trade paperback yeah, so I have I have a good feel for how long a chapter that I write is, and they tend to be somewhere between uh, twenty five hundred and thirty five hundred, eh, sometimes in the low four thousands for words. Uh, I have had my editor on this book tell me like, I think you should write shorter chapters, <laughs> uh, just because he felt like there were good places to kind of like like have a little like break or an ending and he's like this seems like a good ending for a chapter your chapters don't need to be as long and i'm i played around a little bit with that so there are some in here i'm looking that are shorter they're like under two thousand words mm -hmm. um I, I know people who write chapters that are like four pages right like sometimes oh, yeah i did uh, one of the ones that i did that was sort of in the spirit of william gibson i was like i'm gonna be like william gibson i'm gonna have like nine million chapters and they're all gonna be a thousand words long and mm -hmm. it's that's one way to do it especially if sure, you're juggling. yeah I, I would say if you're juggling like lots of different threads POVs. you kind of yeah. need to do that but because uh, you don't want to go away from one character for too long but it has its own issues yeah i just i for me i i always have a feel with like when the chapter is ready to be done right and i always feel for me it's more in like the three thousand to four thousand word range but i understand that that's fairly long that was that was natural for me too when i, I found that i was just naturally writing three thousand word chapters in the first two things i did and i i wrote the short chapters only because i forced myself to for all of my unpublished books so i have as many unpublished books as you have published books now <laughs> so congratulations <laughs> some you. more listener reader questions the team makeup has changed a bit in the mm. alf extraction alf extraction uh since the caledonian gambit what uh, was this something that happened as you decided to add characters or was there a conscious decision to move away from the kind of all male lineup of the Caledonian Gambit? 
Both. Um, so what's interesting about this is that since I've had these ideas in my head for so long, some of these characters, and these a lot of these characters predate their appearances in the book, at least in my idea. So in The Baron Agenda, we meet uh, Natalie Taylor, who is uh, Kovalik's ex-wife, and she is an operative on, on her own. Um, she was like, she existed before I started writing the first book. Like, I just didn't quite know how to work her in and i didn't have a good idea of who her character was um so she did not appear in the caledonian gambit but she is eagle-eyed readers will notice she is mentioned in the caledonian Hmm. gambit (laughs) i did plant that um the same thing is true uh so in in aleph we meet addy sayers who is the a new recruit to the team um she has been in my head to introduce since before the first book again I didn't, she needed enough, she needed a story of her own, and I didn't want to shoehorn that story in on top of the shoehorn, the stories in Caledonian Gambit, which is very much Eli's story, and uh, Baron Agenda, which is very much Kovalik's story. Um, I I felt like she needed more space, more breathing room in order to be, um, you know, like, to be introduced. Um, So part of it is that, that I always had intended to change the team makeups. I also like messing with the team composition a bit because it does change the dynamics and that's fun to play around with but absolutely i did want i didn't want the team to feel like it was just a team of all guys like that was never my intention uh it happened that when i wrote the first book like those are the characters that i sort of originally envisioned as the core of the team and so that um just started me down that path of like this is sort of where you know like who i originally pictured when i came up with this idea almost 20 years ago. Um, but, you know, I, I wanted to make sure that it was a, uh, a team with lots of different people from lots of different backgrounds, with lots of different viewpoints. Um, and I think that was really important to me. So it is a conscious decision, but it's also one that had I felt like I had always planned for. Um, I just, it was going to take time for me to execute on it in that right. way. Um, a follow-up question from another Reader, do you make extensive notes on your characters in advance, or do you tend to discover them through the writing process? A little of both. Um, I have backgrounds for the characters. Uh, I do have a wiki, which Jason has access to. That was gonna. That made... was gonna be my next uh, question. Yeah. Actually, was about the wiki. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we'll get to that in a second. But I will say, I did. I do have ideas of who they are. Uh, details get fleshed out during the writing of the books so i spend some time like you know for bayern agenda i knew kovalik had been in the fight since he was a kid uh you know essentially like an 18 year old conscripted um and i knew various things that you know he was going to have done along the way and parts of his history but i did find out details his relationships with other characters um same thing for eli i had most of his background planned out beforehand but you always discover things kind of as you go um i think addy in the newest book because i spent you know i spent less time on this book you know i had less time to work on it i think i spent more time discovering parts of her character as i went along so i had very good ideas for like where she grew up what her background was what her childhood was like um and where she was when the book starts and finds her um but as i went you found out more things about her past uh that i didn't necessarily know ahead of time but kind of just flesh out the details so i definitely have ideas but i i you sometimes discover interesting things about them as they go it's like oh it would be logical if because they were in this place at this time they ran into this um and so that's kind of fun that's the fun part of having a whole world to, to play in and uh that leads us to the 
to conversation about the wiki. So you do have a wiki. I have access I to do. it. Uh, I was going to ask about the complexity of keeping track. You have three books worth of characters and locations. You're not, you know, you can't just say, oh, this is Paris. This is London. This is Tokyo. This is Mexico City. You can't do that because you've got a lot. I mean, Earth exists in this world and Mexico City mm-hmm. does exist in this world, but mm. um, but there are also planets that are out there. Yeah. So uh, it's a lot to keep track of. And I think it's interesting that you, fi- that you uh, I, I was going to say finally, but like three books in, you're like, you know, let's let's track this. And so you built a wiki <laughs> basically for your own reference of, you know, how is this stuff connected and what have I said about these characters? Um, was that out of necessity? Were you doing a, a, an edit and thinking... Um, that you really need to put this information somewhere? Yeah, well, so here's the thing. I had all that information, but it was kind of all over the place. And that was one problem is like you make a note and you're like, oh, I know I had a note about this planet. Where was that? Was that, and I was, some of it was being kept in the Scrivener files with the manuscripts. And so it's like, well, now I have three different manuscripts. Some of it was in like the notes app, like, and it's like, well, all right, I got to search like four different places now to see if I can find it. I really need to put all this in one place. And some of it is because you're like trying to figure out, have I mentioned something before? And so, especially in this universe where the number of space systems is fairly limited, making sure that I had a place for everything was kind of one of the impetuses because it was like, all right, did I mention this this system already? Have I already set action in here? Have I established something about these planets that I need to go back to? Um, similarly with characters, that's the same thing. It's like even stupid things like what the hell is their eye color, their hair color? When, how old are they, right? Like the, these things are, are things I wanted to keep track of, especially because it was important to me to have a universe where people grow and change and um, these characters evolve because of their experiences so you want to be able to keep track of what happened to them in various places and so i spent a lot of time when i was doing edits especially on this book of searching through the published manuscripts because that's the other thing it's like a lot of times if i'm working from a scrivener file it doesn't include edits from my editor because it usually gets moved over to word at some point so i have to look at the published like ebooks and search and be like did i mention this planet before what have i said about this character who appeared two books ago um and that's good, but it, it definitely is much faster if I have sort of a centralized resource. And so I've been, I'm doing that. I haven't been keeping it as up to date recently, but I do need, um, I do have a lot of information in there that sort of keeps track of all of that. Um, it does run into problems every once in a while, uh, as I think I've, I may have talked about somewhere else. But so none of my books have, uh, none of my books have s- the original title has never survived to right. publication of any of my books. And one of the problems with that in the Aleph extraction was that originally, and there is a significance to Aleph and what that refers to. Originally, I used a different word for that. And when I, when my publisher said, essentially, we don't like this word, you should change it to something else. I thought, well, all right, I'll find something else. And I settled on Aleph. I actually had used a, I can't remember if it was the exact version or a different version of Aleph at some point to refer to a planet. Hmm. Uh, So if you look up in Bayern, uh, it is referred to by that. And I essentially was like, I kind of, I got to slightly hand wave that away because I'm going to use this for a different thing and it's not connected. (laughs) Uh, So yeah, that, I mean, I'll rationalize it at some point. Like, oh, well they call it that planet obviously because of its relationship to this other thing. Um, But yeah, you, you just sometimes work yourself into a slight corner with those kinds of things. You're like, well, I can't change that book. It's out there, you know? So I just have to kind of roll with it and either assume that people aren't going to pick up on that or just, you know, it won't bother them. So 
fine details. But yeah, I've tried to avoid doing that in the future is the point. <laughs> Do some uh, some sort of inspiration and world building questions here. Um, how did you come up with how do you come up with gadgets throughout the series? this uh, reader asked that are more than just plot devices. Do you invent gadgets? Oh my God. <laughs> I'm so bad about those. Um, I, you know, it's funny. I love gadgetry. I tech, tech journalism is my day job. And I feel like sometimes it's just the thing that I'm the least interested in writing about um, because it's just like, ah, I can't come up with anything that's more interesting than the stuff that we already have, especially because like, you know, the stuff 20 years ago, you were coming up with all these awesome things. And now like, it feels like we've surpassed some of them. It's like, well, we have a little computer that's in your pocket and it's super powerful and, you know, outclasses the desktop computer I had 10 years ago. Really? What else is there? And and because the books themselves are not focused on the technology, right? It's not about like, oh, we're all in VR or whatever. Um, I wanted to ride a line between stuff that we could reasonably assume that people would have uh, such as like an equivalent to a smartphone um, as well as some stuff that I try to kind of limit what um, what things I invent and spent a lot of time on so actually one of the interesting things and this kind of came out of the Caledonian Gambit but one of the interesting things I did focus on is um, different applications of essentially the same technology so you learn in the Caledonian Gambit, like we're literally in the first chapter, that wormholes are related to gravity and that a lot of what happens, um, you know, they basically humanity has had to uh, spend a lot of time researching and inventing ways to manipulate gravity to deal with these, uh, you know, the wormholes and traveling between s different solar systems. And so I thought it was interesting that a lot of the tough stuff I spend time on is then offshoots of that, right? Like, because you can assume if people spend a lot of time working on like gravity, they would have a lot of capabilities. So for example, they would have artificial gravity. Um, there's a lot of stuff that refers to the repulsor technology in my in my universe, which essentially is a form of artificial like uh, like gravity canceling. And so I thought that was the fun part was like coming up with stuff like, well, it makes sense that they would have technology to do this because it's related to something that clearly they spent a lot of time on. Um, but at the same time, I don't want to necessarily go into all the details of how like, you know, little different gadgets work because, uh, you know, I, I think people people like having an imagination for some of those things, too. And also, you do want to have the availability of, you know, to sort of pull a gadget out of thin air if you really need it. Ah, what if they have a thing that, that deals with this particular situation? Uh, I know it seems like a plot device, but it is, you know, it's just then something you have to, like, commit to having in your universe, I feel like. Because the real issue is then, you know, two books later when you're like, but they had this thing two <laughs> books ago. Yeah. Why don't they have that now? And you're like, eh. Exactly. So, yeah. Um, I've updated the wiki, by the way. So, thank you. You're welcome. Oh, oh, thank you. Well, that's interesting. So, you mentioned this is the this is your contribution to the wiki uh, earlier was, and I think this is interesting. And it's one of the other things I deal with in the book is like communication. I think communication is super interesting when you get to a different solar system level because I think a lot of books hand wave over that, like ah, we have you know faster than light communication, or it just takes a long time for things to get to place to place. But in this universe, because the systems with the wormholes in them that humanity has settled are potentially very far apart in the galactic uh, map, as it were. Um, even like a faster than light communication system could take years to get from system to system, whereas people are traveling between system to system much faster than that because of wormholes. So you need to think about how does communication get affected then? Like, how do you deal with the fact that like, 
uh, you need to send a message or you need to like transfer money from a system yeah, so to you, a system. So I find that interesting. If you can't send uh, if you can't send a, a radio transmission through a wormhole, you have to have right. like a, I mean, what what Bujold does, I think, is they, they're like buoys, right? They're essentially yeah. you like shoot shoot a little thing through the wormhole and it goes to the other side and it sends its messages and then it goes back and they're almost like little automated relay uh, uh, right. ships. Right. That are just yeah. kind of going back and forth with the mail. They collect all the mail and then they go through and then they burst, transmit, then they get it back. It's a very, very slow internet, intergalactic internet. Yeah, and I think that's that's similar to probably how it works in, in my universe. Yeah. I, I've definitely had ideas of dealing of stories that kind of deal with that where it's like people try to like hack or hijack the mail while mm-hmm. it's in transit uh just to see if they can like essentially like you know rob a bank or right like oh like, what if we hack the system and add like right. a buy order yeah, i don't know i'm playing around with it's that. like a man in the middle attack it's, a, it's a literally a man in the middle attack <laughs> yeah man in the middle of the wormhole um yeah i i did add so previously and back in december i i created a canonical uh, swatch exists in your universe <laughs> uh they're the organization that's in, tar- in charge of the galactic time standards yeah. um and uh, I just created an entry in your wiki for for oh uh, for Aleph, that is probably a planet, but not the tablet, <laughs> the Aleph tablet, which is a different thing. So you've got there's lots of Alephs I now. Sh- I should be I should be looking at this more. The real problem is that <laughs> because it's designed to be a single. Uh, person wiki it, you, you can't tell which ones are me yeah i can't tell what's you and what's me which is really oh um, boy. Uh, another reader says in your universe which spaceship would you fly oh um definitely the cavalier which is the uh the ship that our, our team uses it's i mean it's it's slightly millennium falcon yeah it's a like, little bit a little bit, it's a little bit. Uh, That's this is, this it. is gonna it's be similar which character are you most most like and which character <laughs> would your wife say you're most like <laughs> <laughs> well, she's here. I'll ask her in a second. Um, I uh, so what's interesting about this is when I started writing the series, I was roughly the same age as Eli, uh-huh. um, and now, now I am Kavalik. basically Kavalik's age. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so there's been a bit of a change. Like I feel like um, there's a spectrum because Eli is like really. You know, he's a little naive, he's kind of cocky, um, but he has also been sobered by kind of the experiences he's had, whereas Kovalik is, you know, he's older, he's been through a lot more, um, he is, I think what's nice about his interplay with Eli is it forces him to lighten up a little bit too, so... I think probably I'm still probably a little more like Eli. I'm not as cool as Kovalik. Let's be honest. Mm. I don't know. I'm going to ask my wife if she's sitting here. There's a question for you. Which character do you think I'm the most like in the book? Oh, not an Animal Crossing. (laughs) (laughs) Not not an Animal Crossing. Oh, Brody. Yeah. Okay. She she said Brody immediately. Yeah. That's that's fine. That's that's the Dan character. He's he's got my voice more than any other ones. You're working toward Kovalik though yeah right <laughs> you have spoken before about books and series that have inspired you such as the Vorkosigan books but are there any contemporary books you've read since you started publishing these mm. books that have inspired your latest books he, almost certainly uh, I definitely re- I've started reading a lot more this year in particular and I think you know it's tough because when you're reading something you want to if you're reading in your genre, like you have to read in the genre before you're trying to write in a genre, right? Like that's kind of step one, but you also don't want to necessarily read stuff that is so close to the stuff you're writing that you start lifting things. Sure. So I try not to read things that are like 
like super close to what I'm doing, but at the same time, you can't help but be influenced by some of them. So uh, I'm trying to think of stuff that's recent uh, that I definitely like. There's definitely other books I've worked on where it's like stuff has has bled over. Um, I would say, I mean, you know, I'm still reading The Expanse, and I definitely that has a huge impact on me because it's like if not one of the best known like you know um uh new sci-fi properties around there like certainly it's it's one of the most popular um so that's definitely something that i feel like i read and i always learn something from them and i try to uh you know not not borrow but like i incorporate stuff i read a lot of like spy and mystery stories too um and those inspire me but i think more about like plot construction sure because there's definitely an element of like well you're you're fundamentally trying to create a mystery and unfold something and you need to see how how that's done and and mystery and spy move that's that's the secret sauce of this series as somebody who's read these three books in various forms is i i've always been a lover of mashing up genres and i love that this is a this is spy and space opera simultaneously um i i think it's i think it's really nice because you can say oh yeah i get it and it also like you read these books and you're like this is somebody who likes sci-fi and who likes spy novels and mysteries and uh exactly. and i don't it, it makes it a little more uncommon right like it, it there aren't that many books out there that mix these genres i'm sure there are some but not they're not as many to say it's right. not I just mean, like, space opera it's space opera that's also spy fiction that's cool one of the biggest impacts on this I, i'm not sure if it came up in the other in the previous two episodes we did was the the sandbaggers the, absolutely the tv show it's yeah. like a huge impact and, and Get through on that box <laughs> yeah from that um originally how i came across that was greg rucka who's a, a writer including tv comic books novels he's written kind of everything um he did a series called queen and country which actually anthony right. johnson wrote some uh like a spinoff part of mm-hmm. uh and that was based out of his love for the sandbaggers which right. is how i found it's the all, sandbaggers it's all coming yeah. i will say i'll throw in a couple of things that i think of uh, books that um i think of when i read this and that i feel like would be a nice kind of inspiration and it's it's very specific which is ann leckie's books about the imperial raj and, Which I've only read one of, <laughs> and, right? Uh, and I've I've said on another podcast that you should read the second one because I think it's actually more of what you like in the second one because it's more Star Trekky. Um, but also, uh, Arkady Martin's uh, A Memory Called Empire, mm. which we just mm. did. Well, okay, there, we will talk about it in a future episode of The Incomparable. <laughs> we already <laughs> recorded it, but it's not out yet. But th- that's coming down the right the the line in our Nebula episode. Um, and. The reason I mention these books is because they are about space opera. They're space opera. They are about star empires, which is a classic feature of space opera. But they are looking at it from a much more modern kind of anti-colonialist, anti-imperialism mm-hmm. perspective. And what I like about it is it is directly interrogating this fundamental space opera concept, which is the star empire and saying like right. all the ways we know things like the British Empire were bad or you could talk about like the impact that uh, America's uh, coming to the forefront in the latter part of the 20th century has impacted every everybody else on the planet in terms of its its influence in popular culture and its economic influence and all those things. And I, I having read those books, it has changed how I view star empires in mm. other other kind of fiction. And since you have a star empire that is, you know, everybody's got a side. You know, they've got their perspective. We may learn more about it. But like 
kind of the evil empire to the good side that is not an empire and doesn't have an emperor. And this is what the Cold War is about. I I keep coming back to that and thinking this is actually kind of great because you have to emulate what the actions of the people in this star empire would do. And those books have been really rich kind of examples of, of doing that, of saying, you know, what are all the ways that an empire is fundamentally a problem uh, mm-hmm, beyond them mm-hmm. just being evil or being in opposition to our favorite characters, but just the fact that they've set up an empire. Right. I and I think what's what I've definitely been interested in playing with, and somebody asked me about this on Twitter a couple of weeks ago, um, is who are the good guys and who are the bad guys? Right. And is that a useful distinction at this point? Right. Because somebody mentioned they read something in Bayern and they're like, I have to reevaluate. And I was like, yeah. You should reevaluate. Right. <laughs> Everybody's a little got their hands a little dirty. Yeah, like, and there's a balance of power, and our characters are on one side of it. But I, I would argue, I mean, there's mm-hmm. a lot of great spy fiction and spy movies where mm-hmm. the whole point is maybe we're not better than them. Yeah, we're just different. Absolutely, especially if we allow ourselves to use the same. Uh, techniques as them and and to plug your book which we're here to do the aleph extraction that's you know you are you have a bunch of characters on in close quarters who are working our teams who are working for the opposite sides trying to do this heist and so you know you're putting your characters right up against it and i think it, i think that's fascinating to know uh you know who we know what side we're on but there's a there is the question of like that doesn't mean that the other side doesn't have their own perspective absolutely yeah yeah I think that's fun to play with. You're right. For spy sure. novels. That's the best part of spy novels. It's like, who do I trust? Like as a reader, as a protagonist, like trust is a is a rare commodity. Right. A uh, handful more questions here. Uh, this one, this one I am amused by because I think I know the answer, which is how much were you influenced by Babylon 5 and Mass Effect? It seems like there are a lot of rifts in the galactic Cold War. <laughs> Jason, you want to take this? Well, so I've never seen Babylon uh, 5. This is, I mean, I have seen a little bit, but it was like when it was originally on and I would, I would randomly catch it on the syndication channel locally. Uh So never enough to follow it. Um, I have played all the Mass Effect games or at least the first three. Um, there's, I will say there is one particular piece of inspiration. I don't even know if I would call it that as so much as like the simpatico thing where it's like, it kind of crystallized yeah. an idea for me. I love, there's a scene at the beginning of the Bayern agenda in Kavalik's first flashback where he sees like the giant ship, the Illyrican ship, like coming through the atmosphere. And there's a scene at the beginning of Mass Effect 3 that's very much about that with like giant alien ships coming down to Earth. And I just love the feeling of that where you're standing there and you're just like, oh no. I mean, but like, you know, Independence Day did that years before sure. that. Like it's not, it's a trope, but yeah. Now, this mm-hmm. is what I was going to say is I, I saw people complain that the plot of the first season of Star Trek Picard is very similar to a plot of a of a mass effect game. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and um so I, I'm not I'm not taking a shot at this questioner, but I, I'm gonna say I think I think a lot of people who play video games are lacking the con- the broader context of storytelling and think that Mass Effect invented a bunch of stuff and it did They did a very good story. They did a very good story. But like you know, like a lot of other sci-fi stories, it's there's a lot of tropes. Yeah. There's a lot of tropes that get thrown around, yeah. and that's fine. So that's a, that's a no, but it's okay. It's it's still it's still widescreen, uh, galactic, uh, right? Effect yeah. space opera y kind of stuff for sure. 
and yeah. they have that in common. Okay, one more kind of world-building question, which is, do you have a larger story arc in mind for this series, and how many books would you like there to be? Ah, <laughs> uh, see, I always hope nobody answers that question, because then I feel like I end up in a bind about, like, delivering that number of books. Um, the answer to the first part is 100% yes. <laughs> um, I know where this story ends, where the overarching story of the Galactic Cold War ends. Uh, I know some of the fates of the characters, not all of them, um, but I kind of know what the big climactic event is. I have a certain number of books in mind. Um, it is more than the books I've written. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I just try to avoid like, sure. like painting myself into a corner here. And I don't necessarily want to like scare off if like my publishers like, like listen to this and they're like, he wants to write 20 books. Like, <laughs> we'll never make no, it to right. the end. It's not 20. It's less than 20. It's less than 10, but it's more okay, than good. what I've written now. <laughs> All right. Um, and last question. All right. This is, uh, get, get your brain going, because this is the fantasy casting question. Oh, good. All right. Dr. Tony Fauci got Brad Pitt. <laughs> Who do you envision playing our intrepid heroes in the blockbuster Galactic Ooh. Cold War films? Some of them I have much better pictures of in my head than others. Uh, and that's, I think, it's it's challenging because, uh, and they also change as it goes along. So I will say the one who in my head I feel like the strongest about is probably Tapper, uh-huh. um, who is, I, I've had a couple people in mind, but more recently. So Sean Pertwee, who played Alfred on Gotham, oh, and yeah. is the son of John Pertwee. He would be perfect. He's got the demeanor. He's got the accent. He kind of looks weathered and beaten up. I love him. He's great on that show. This letter writer suggested celebrity chef and and top chef judge Tom Colicchio. Uh, all right, hold on. I got. I got. I got to look him up now. People are la- loving this. Top Chef people are loving this. I had. I think I described to you at some point. <laughs> all right. As as Kavalik, is that what this no, is? No, it's Tapper. Oh, it's Tapper. All right, I can see it. He's okay. got like the. He's got like the. Uh, like you got slightly... Sean Pertwee as Tapper. Yeah. Um, we we know we know already, and we've said on a previous version that yes. you want um you want the human uh, target guy. Mark Valley. Mark Valley. I, like, uh, I like Mark Valley, but there's a bunch of people who could play that role. As I mean, like, I, I feel like that Kavalik role has like, you know, if you came up and said like, we'd like Idris Elba to play him, I'd be like, yep. <laughs> sure. No one's no going to turn down Idris Elba. <laughs> right. I mean, hey, if you want to, if, if Tom Cruise walked in and said he wanted to play that character, I was like, he's a little old, but yeah, I mean, he's got the right attitude. I could see that. Sure. Um, Jensen Ackles from Supernatural, because I gave my Supernatural reference. Sure. He could play that character. Sure. Um, I, yeah, Brody too. I think is harder because like you want someone who is snarky but without being annoying, and I don't know who that. That's gonna that's gonna that be a, a newcomer, right? That's gonna be somebody we haven't heard of who's been a guest right. star in a bunch of stuff and yeah. then gets cast because he's fairly young and. Yeah. And I think I said that the uh, the guy I kind of pictured in my head when um, I saw Paige um, from the previous books is um, Jacob Anderson, who's the guy who plays Grey Worm on Game of Thrones. Ah. I kind of like, I think his look is good. He seems like he's kind of like, he's good looking, but he's kind of nondescript. He could like blend in with a lot of different places. Mm. Like, and I think he's got a very nice demeanor for that. So I like him. And then um, Taylor, Natalie Taylor, in my head, has always been Keely Hawes, who I love. Uh, And I think she would be great. She's got kind of the right uh, attitude. I think she's a little older than when I originally wrote the character. Right. um, But she's kind of who I pictured in my head. And um, I'm trying to think of anybody else. I had like a really, really strong. Oh, so the villain 
in or antagonist in the Aleph extraction, uh, who is uh, uh, named Afabia She. Uh, in my head, just because I love her look and I think she's cool, she could do a really great menacing villain is uh, Lupita Nyong'o. Oh, <laughs> which yeah. Is like, I think she'd be great in that role. I really like her look. I think she'd be good. Uh, so that's my she's my pick for for that character. But yeah, I don't know. I like people to envision their own their own whoever you feel like. That's fine. I know nice. Jason has a very different opinion about who what Cavalli should look like than I do. Yeah, it's true. I I, I consider him. I mean, he's a little too old, but Zelico Ivanic from uh, from Homicide and a bunch of other stuff is who I always sort of picture as where he's this. He seems like a almost bookish kind of guy and a little bit older but um but he's like actually uh, tough as 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 steel underneath there are two people on my short list for um uh the the general uh kavalik's boss uh one picture in my head was f murray abraham who i think has kind of an interesting gravitas I, i really liked his character on homeland and felt like he was a good match for it but also and this is like a totally like like pie in the sky thing. Christopher Plummer, like especially having just seen Knives Out, like Christopher Plummer feels like he's got just the right amount of like he could be your kindly grandfather, or he could be like a mastermind of things. And he's just he's an amazing actor. So, I, I, and and I think I head casted uh, Farhan Tahir as that oh. character. Yeah, yeah, okay, I can see that. I love that guy. Yeah. And he's not, yeah. and he's often Hollywood often casts him as a villain, but he's also the the first captain we see in the J.J. Abrams Star Trek movie. And I always thought right. that he was like really yeah, good. Yeah, he looks good. He's he'd be good in that role too. Yeah. All right. Well, Dan, the uh, you may not know this, but the uh, the Aleph Extraction is released May twelfth, and people oh, should find it at find uh, find bookstore websites everywhere or on uh, the ebook uh, places that you go for ebooks. And uh, you can find your local bookstore and see if they let you order it online and have it shipped to you. Some places you might even be able to do something like curbside pickup for the book, or you can just get the ebook will drop for sure on on May 12th. Any other places you recommend people look to get the Aleph extraction? Yeah, so I mean, you mentioned indie bookshops. IndieBound is a great resource for looking it up, and I think they've partnered with Bookshop.org with local bookshops that are sort of selling stuff via an online mechanism. Um, I believe... So I've done signed book plates in the past. I think without, I don't know the full details of this yet, but I think the Angry Robot is going to have some book plates that I'm going to sign too. So that'll be an option if you want to get something signed. I know like you know, signed books right now, can't really do those. Um, there is an audiobook coming. Oh, nice. <laughs> I can confirm that. But it, unfortunately, it's been delayed by the pandemic. Of, yeah. Yeah. So um, I don't know when that will be. I know they had been hoping to hit the same release date, but I was told last week that it will not. So I don't know when it's going to show up. But if you really are devoted to having it in audio, it is coming. Just hang on. I just don't know when. All right. Yeah. But if you want to buy an ebook in the meantime, that's also great. It's great. I appreciate the support. Well, Dan, thank you for taking the time to ha- answer all these questions about your book on this special episode of The Incomparable. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you for hosting it. I, I always enjoy talking with you about this kind of stuff. Yeah. So we, it's, it's a delight. It's a lot of fun. I'm going to go edit the wiki some more. Um, <laughs> thanks to everybody out there for listening to this episode of The Incomparable. We will see you next week. Bye.